scriptures this morning from uh, Galatians 5, 13 through 26. Let me, uh, verse 13. You were indeed called to be free, brothers and sisters. Don't turn this freedom into an excuse for your corrupt nature to express itself. Rather, serve each other through love. All of Moses' teachings are summarized in a single statement. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you criticize and attack each other, be careful that you don't destroy each other. Let me explain further. Live your life as your spiritual nature directs you. Then you will never follow through on what your corrupt nature wants. While your corrupt nature wa- what your corrupt nature wants is contrary to what your spiritual nature wants. And what your spiritual nature wants is contrary to what your corrupt nature wants. They are opposed to each other. As a result, you don't always do what you intend to do. If your spiritual nature is your guide, you are not subject to Moses' laws. Now, the effect of the corrupt nature are obvious. Illicit sex, perversions, promiscuity, idolatry, drug use, hatred, rivalry, jealousy, anger outburst, selfish ambition, conflict, fictions, envy, drunkenness, wild partying, and similar things. I've told you in the past, and I'm telling you again, that people who do these kind of things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the spiritual nature produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There are no laws against things like that. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their corrupt nature along with its passions and desires. If we live by our spiritual nature, then our lives need to conform to our spiritual nature. We can't allow ourselves to act arrogantly and to provoke or envy each other. Well, good morning to all of you. If you would open your Bibles once again to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start out there and then we'll be moving over and back into Romans like we did uh, last week. So... We're going to be talking today about walking by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that is. Walking by the Spirit. In 1979, I was studying alone in my dorm room at LSU when I heard a knock at the door. And there were two young men there from a campus ministry and I was, you know, glad for a break from studying. You know how students are. Any, any chance to stop studying was great. And so I invited them in, and I and they asked me, the first thing was, was I a believer in Jesus Christ? And I said that I was. And so then they asked me if I had discovered the Spirit-filled life. Well, I wasn't familiar with that phrase as a religious experience, so they opened a little booklet, this very booklet, and if it's on the screen too, if you, you probably can't see it in my hand here too, too well, but they handed me the little booklet, booklet opening to the first page, and they said, well, because you are a believer, you're not the natural man. So, okay, you know, that's good to know. 
Then they said, which of the other two circles on these two pages would represent you? So looking at the second circle on the left-hand side there, I mean, that, I don't know if you can see it real well, but it looks perfect. Everything is in order, perfect order. Jesus is on the throne. I'm off to the side, the E for ego there. And all of the stuff of life is where it's supposed to be, perfect. Well, I couldn't honestly say that that one represented me. And they said, okay, what about the third circle? So I looked at it, the one on the right, and, well, it's a mess. So I knew I struggled with sin. I wasn't going to try to deny that. So I said, well, I guess that would be me. They said, okay, that means you are a carnal Christian. Okay, that didn't sound real good. But seeing my, my face sink at that point, they said, not to worry, because we can show you how to become a spiritual Christian. Well, I, I know that they meant well, but they put a burden on me that I couldn't bear and was never meant to bear. The little booklet, as they showed me, goes on to tell you how to be, how to live the Spirit-filled life, or how to, you know, how to be filled with the Spirit. And so, briefly, it says, sincerely desire the filling of the Spirit. Okay, I desired that. Got it. Second, confess your sins. Oh, I did a lot of that. And then claim the fullness of the Spirit. And that's where they go wrong. Okay, because there's nowhere in the Bible that tells you to claim it. Okay, and and looking at it again, some of the tech guys and I were talking about. It, I was showing them the little booklet, and they don't, they can't even support that from Scripture. And you know, they they give a couple scriptures, but it doesn't have anything to do with that, with claiming that. Well, I believed them, and so I tried to claim the fullness of the Spirit over and over again. And so, for the next. 11 years, I slogged through life under the burden of trying to become a spiritual Christian and constantly failing. And what the burden was is, you know, trying and then thinking, what's wrong with me? These guys apparently had it. What am I doing wrong? And I'd look again at the little booklet and, you know, of course, I was in the Scriptures and... Things weren't quite lining up, but I wasn't sure what to do about it, so I kept trying, trying, trying. And then, around 1990, I was in an intensive study on the writings of John Owen and when I was in seminary. And so, uh, it was a class uh, that was taught by Dr. John Hannes. We've had him here a few times, you know. And, and so, it was a wonderful study. There were only three or four of us in the class. And what we would do is we would read John Owen and whatever writing we were going to be working on. And we would read, you know, so many pages, and then we'd come to class and we'd talk about it. And, and Dr. Hannah would correct us. No, that's not what he's saying. This is what he's saying, you know. And, and then there were things just like we tried and tried and tried and still don't know what he's saying, and he would explain it to us. I'm like, oh, great. And I've got all these notes in margin. And it was a wonderful class. Well, in that same semester... 
we I was one of my majors was historical theology. And so I was we were having a historical theology department retreat. So Dr. Hannah was leading us on. And so we were on our way there. So Connie and I were with one of my classmates and friends uh, and his wife. And, and so he and I were up front and he was driving and we were uh, batting John Owen back and forth like a ping pong ball all the way out to the long drive out to where the retreat was going to be. And I remember, just like it was yesterday, that, you know, I was saying, okay, Owen said this. And he was, yeah, but, you know, we were wrestling with this. And all of a sudden, the lights came on. And that burden that I had been bearing for 11 years was lifted. What I, the reason I felt free at that point, and it's interesting because, that's what Paul says there in Galatians chapter 5 is, you know, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. And, okay, so the, this should be freeing, not more uh, putting a, a burden on us. I learned that the struggle with sin is normal. That doesn't mean it's okay. That doesn't mean that I don't have to do anything about it. No, I mean, the Bible is very clear. There's a lot you have to do about it. But the struggle is normal. There wasn't something wrong with me in the sense that I, I was going, that, that I couldn't do what these guys apparently claim to do. They're not two states of, of Christian. There's not a carnal Christian and there's not a spiritual Christian. Just as we've said before, there are not two natures in us. We have the new nature. That's it. Okay, now there is the flesh there. We've talked about that and we'll talk about it some more. But there's not two natures. There's one nature in us if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're an unbeliever, you have one nature. It's the old nature. But what I learned is that the Bible teaches what we call progressive sanctification. This is what we find in in Reformed doctrine and theology, is it's progressive sanctification. In other words, it's a progress. We're to make progress. It's something we work toward. We don't, because they had presented to me this idea, and I kept hearing it from other people, um, even in some of my other classes in seminary, that there were these two states. You know, it's like, okay, well, sometimes you're a carnal Christian, which, by the way, Paul would say it means, you, you know, in his mind, you, you're saying, I'm an unsaved Christian, because that's what he meant by carnal. <clears throat> and, and then you're a spiritual Christian. So you're a spiritual Christian. Everything's great, and you're, you're you know, rocking along, and, and no problems. Okay? Well, that person doesn't exist this side of glory. Okay? Except for Jesus. And then, but, you know, carnal Christian. So anytime you sin in your head, you think, okay, now I've moved into this other state and now I'm, I'm now a carnal Christian. Like, oh my, I got to get out of that. And they will say, you know, get out of one and into the other. And well, I want to share with you today what I've learned, not only on, on that day when the lights came on, uh, that I've, I learned from John Owen initially, but what I've learned since as I put all this together. I want you too to feel the weight of any burden that you have in trying to slog through this Christian life and, and you feel like it's just not working. I want that burden to be lifted. I want you to learn how to make real progress against sin and real progress in holiness. So last week we saw in Romans 7 that Paul took a more active approach as a believer 
in, in trying to live holy. But the problem was, it was good that he was trying, but he was trying in his own power. Because remember we said that in chapter 7, there was only one mention of the Holy Spirit. And that was way back at the beginning. And so in chapter 6, you don't find the Holy Spirit mentioned, and only once in chapter 7, not at all in the section, the last half of Romans 7, where he's talking about the struggle that he has. And that's important. That's an important clue for us. He, as a Christian, was trying to live the Christian life, live holy, but he kept failing because he was doing it in his own power. And so that's when we get into chapter 6, and guess who chapter 6 is so much about? The Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, Jesus is prominent and the Father is prominent, but the Holy Spirit is so prominent there in ways that we often don't find in, in other chapters, like chapters 6 and 7, for example. That this little booklet, the, what it teaches is a, a mostly uh, passive approach. You ask for it, you claim it, you want it, and you kind of wait for it. And the way the little booklet presents it is that you, you wait for it and you know you've got it when all of a sudden now you live the Christian life the way you're supposed to and everything's going well. Remember that circle where everything looks perfect? Okay. And I'd never experienced that. You know, and so... But that is not what the Bible is calling you to do. So, we are not to just, you know, let go and let God just sit back and wait for it, just ask and wait. So Paul Tripp explained this way. He says, you don't wait for grace and then do what God has told you to do. To do, You get enabling grace in motion. Why is that? He says later, God's grace is form-fitted for your moment of need. Okay? So it's just like in Lamentations 3 where God's mercies are new. How often? Every morning. Every morning, right? The same is true of His grace. So as you are, are living out in obedience, living out the Word of God in obedience, that is, as you're depending on the Spirit, as He gives you the grace to enable you to do that. Now, we're going to talk about how to... So it might sound a little mystical there, and like we're back to the little booklet again, but no, I'm going to show you that there's some very real things that we need to be doing and we're going to examine that, the grace in motion. That's what we're going to look at today. So let me give you an overview and an illustration of what we're going to cover today. Our inner man, our new self, has new desires for pleasing God. Those desires are energized by the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, in our inner man. That's why there are battles. And so let me read again uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. This is the battle, okay? The reality of the battle. And it's not between two natures. It's between what happens in our flesh and what the Holy Spirit is doing in our new man, our new self. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you might not do the things that you please or that you want to do. That's what we saw Paul doing. This was kind of in a, you know, in a nutshell what happened in chapter 7. I'm trying to do it, and then I end up not doing what I hope to do. But we remember we've said, sin is no longer the master 
in our new self, our inner man. But our inner man does still sin. Sin is not resident in our inner man, our new self. It, but we do sin. We sin when we, when an attack is launched from the flesh, tempting us, and then we give in to it. So sin resides in our unredeemed flesh. And we said, remember last time, that's mostly our, our flesh and bones body. But there's that unredeemed humanness that kind of fills that out a little bit more. And you think there, we talked about our, our, our brain and there's an aspect of our thinking and sort of, that sort of thing. It's still part of the flesh. And so I hope that as we go through this today, things will start becoming a bit clearer. But our flesh becomes a beachhead from which to launch attacks on our inner self, on our inner man. And think about what James said there when he talks about how this is how sin happens. Okay, so first in in James one verses 13 through 15, he says that, you know, sin gets a foothold when we are, quote, tempted and carried away and enticed by our own lust. So you see what happens is sin gets a foothold in our flesh and then it launches an attack on our inner man. And what it's doing is it's tempting us. Okay? That's what the attack is. But it's not until... See, when you're tempted, you haven't sinned yet. Okay? But, he says, though, when lust is conceived... It gives birth to sin. And then that is where the inner man commits sin. The inner man gives in to the attack. It loses the attack. It chooses to sin. Okay, so let's look now at this an illustration here. So I, I modified this a little bit from last time. And I made the, the beach, the white sandy beach there, a little bigger. because You'll see why here. So... The island is our new self, our new man, okay? The white sandy beaches is the flesh, okay? And I don't have anything against white sandy beaches. I actually love them, but, you know. And what's going on there is the the little green man is your inner man. If you didn't know it was green, it is. Your inner man has the sword of the spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Okay, we're going to get to that. Okay? And that's where this attack is launched. You see how the the little red guy there, that's sin. Okay? And so, he, or sin, it, is launching an attack. It is tempting the inner man. And the inner man should be using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to fight back. Okay? And so that is what's going on. That's where this idea that some of the commentators talk about a beachhead is very helpful to us. You see, so our flesh is the unredeemed part of us. It's not the inner man. Okay? And that's where sin resides. Those sinful desires are still the residue, if you will, of those sinful desires. And we're going to talk about this a little bit. So how does sin operate in our flesh? How does that happen? Well, J. Adams taught that it's primarily habits of sin and fleshly thinking that remain from our old nature. So when before we were saved, we had one nature. It was the old nature. It was the sinful nature. Okay. Now that we... And it had sinful habits and sinful desires. But now that we have a new nature, the flesh still there 
has the residue of that. And he says it's those habits and sinful desires that you that were left over from that. But they're now in your flesh, not in your inner man. They're not in your, your new mind, the new heart. Okay. You might be thinking, okay, John, you're talking about the flesh, but what about those other two culprits that evil triumvirate, the world, the flesh, and the devil? Well, yes, the world and the devil also play into this, but we're not going to talk about them today because guess how they work through us? Through the flesh. So if we deal with the flesh, we've gained a lot of ground. And we're going to get to the devil later at the end of of Ephesians, right? So we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare and all that, okay? So we're just going to work on talk about the flesh today. So what about what Adam said? Um, and I think it's a little bit more than what he's talking about, but what he's talking about is gets at the heart of it, and it's 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 the majority of how sin um, is still there and how it manifests itself through habit. Okay. We're going to talk about this Greek term gymnazo a, a bit today. Now, we get our word gymnasium from that. And what's a gymnasium? It's a place where you are trained, where training happens, among other things, right? So, gymnazo, trained. Think about Peter described habit in unbelievers. He said but some of the, these unbelievers he was talking about, their hearts were trained in greed, gymnazo. It's like they went to a gymnasium and they learned how to be greedy, okay? And they developed habits. And so that's what Adams was talking about where we get this idea of habit because you have to, you train yourself to, uh, to have good habits, for example. But you also can train yourself for sinful habits, which we did before we were saved. With those sinful habits, there's also sinful desires. Those sinful desires were once idols in the heart, Ezekiel calls them. Okay? And so this is something that's, I hope, a little clearer. It's a little clearer now in in my mind. When we were unbelievers, we had idols in our heart. But those idols linger, still linger, in the flesh. Okay? So we probably shouldn't call them idols of the heart or idols in the heart in a believer. But, you know, we understand what that means, you see. It's an idol, but it's in our flesh now, okay, because we have a new heart, okay? But those those habits linger. I mean, you can think about it. I mean, there, there are sinful habits that you have that you had before you were saved, and you've got to work against those, right? And that's that's what we're talking about. Now, let me give an illustration to show you the interplay between sinful desires and sinful habits. So... Um, and this didn't happen in, in our girl's life. You know, a lot of times or sometimes we use them as illustrations, but this is not them. But some kids who have been adopted, before they were adopted, they often starved. And because they were in horrible conditions. And because they starved regularly, they learned to steal food. Like at night, they'd get up, steal food, and hide it so that if they need it later... Like tomorrow, if there's no food, I've got something, okay? And they would hoard it. When they're later adopted, and they're in a family that where there's always plenty of food, especially if they're adopted here in the U.S., that's usually the case, right? There's always plenty of food. But they have to learn to stop hoarding, stop you know, stealing the food, hiding it, hoarding it, 
and learn to understand that there's plenty of food. There's always going to be plenty of food. Okay? They have to unlearn that bad habit. But, think about this. Stealing will come in handy when there are other sinful desires that they want. So later on, it's like, I really want that, whatever it is. Well, they learned that if I want or need something, I have to steal it. Okay, so it's a habit now. So when they feel that desire, I want this, then they steal it. And, and a lot of times, they, instead of just asking, sometimes they would be given it. Instead, they just their habit is to steal it. Along with stealing, and you see how this is complex. And this is why it's so hard to get rid of our sin sometimes. Is because it, it, it's all interwoven. They also learn deception, uh, habits of deception, lying, okay, or hiding first. So um, they would steal something, get up at night, sneak in there, steal it, but they would also hide it. Deception. That'll come in handy later, too, they will think. They also learned habits of lying. Okay, whenever they were caught, they would lie. Oh, I didn't put it there. Oh, I thought you told me to. Or, you know, right? And so they can end up with where one thing has really turned into multiple habits and multiple sinful desires. Now, all children learn sinful habits from the people around them. Okay? So I know parents are going to start squirming. I know <clears throat> a child may learn how to, may learn to respond to life in anger and learned it from mom or dad sometimes. Or they might learn to handle this desire they, they have to be popular. I just want to be liked. And they learn from their friends. Well, you can dress this way, which ends up being possibly sinfully. Or to behave sinfully so that you'll be thought to be cool. Okay? So you see how we, we learn these things from others. And that's where the aspect of the world comes in. The world, flesh, and the devil. Okay? So fleshly desires lead us to develop sinful habits... Sinful habits serve our fleshly desires, those idols, which now are in our flesh. So after we're saved, what once was a heart idol, now in, in these habits, they reside in our flesh, not in the new man. Okay? So what do we do about all that? Okay? Well, how, how do we handle the sinful habits and desires and this is this is what I want us to, to grasp. There's four things that need to happen. Remember, remove, replace, and reinforce. Okay, I was ha- happy that those all kind of fell into place pretty easy without too much, you know, forcing it. So, remember key truths. Remove sinful habits. Replace with new habits. Reinforce your new self. And you probably are thinking of all kinds of scriptures right now. So, we're going to work through some of those. Okay, first... Remember key truths. Turn back over to Romans chapter 6. And I'll call out something there in just a second. Remember key truths. 
we have to confidently trust in what God has already accomplished. There are a lot of things that Scripture tells us that God accomplished. And we worked through a bunch of those last time and, and the time before. What is it that God has done? And we should call them to mind often. Uh, the first one, remember, uh, some people get hung up on this and think this is all you ever have to do. But Romans six eleven, even so, consider yourselves, or remember the older term, reckon, yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. So what Paul is saying there is, okay, number one, you need to remember and, and realize and trust in what God has already done. You have died to sin. In other words, it's not your master anymore. And you're alive to God. Okay. And so that, that those two things change everything. Okay. And then he starts telling us what we need to be doing. Number two to three, like that, okay? So number one is remember key truths. But there are other things, too. Uh, we find in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for us in Christ. Christ fulfilled the law for us in 8.4. Uh, the Holy Spirit is extending life to our flesh, and we're going to be uh, explaining that a little bit more today. And then there, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Okay, that big section there at the end of Romans 8. Okay, so those are just some of the things that Scripture tells us. This is what has happened, what God has already accomplished for you. We, we have to understand that because if you try to do the rest of what I'm going to share with us, with y'all, what we're to do, you're going you're gonna to get frustrated, you're going to lose hope. You have to keep going back and say, okay, what about this path that I'm on? It is solid, it is firm, it is level. And that's what these truths are. It's, they make up the path in front of us, God's path that we're to walk on. Second, after remember key truths, now remove sinful habits. So we saw already uh, in Ephesians 4.25 this example of putting off falsehood or lying. That was the first one. We're going to have some more uh, coming up. But we're to put off sinful habits and desires. Another way that Scripture instructs us in this is with what especially the Puritans and others in the Reformed traditions to call the doctrine of mortification. So Romans, uh, turn over to chapter 8. And, and I'm always impressed by uh, John Owen. So in his work on the mortification of sin and believers, he takes half a verse... 13b, and writes 86 pages on it. So, uh, of course, that's nothing compared. I'm reading through William Gurnall right now on uh, the complete Christian in Complete Armor, and it's like 500 pages on around that. Oh, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, you know, it's like I'm not even halfway yet, you know, and I've been working on it for a long time. But, Owen takes Romans 8.13b, and this is the doctrine of mortification. He says, But if by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he's saying that we need to be putting to death, mortifying, putting to death the deeds of the, of the flesh. Okay, remember that, 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 that the white sandy beaches there, the flesh. We need to be putting that to death. Okay, and putting the deeds there to death. What our goal in that, in that mortification, is to further weaken sin in our flesh. Because 
uh, when it says that our flesh has been crucified, it doesn't mean that it's completely dead and it's a corpse, okay? You're making the illustration do too much. It means that it, its power has been broken, its dominion has been broken. But when we mortify, put to death the deeds of the body, these specific sins, like lying, what we're doing is we're further weakening them, okay, constantly. And we do that with the Spirit's help because he says here, remember the key is the Holy Spirit. If you, which he was not doing when Romans 7, now remember Romans 7 and 8 are, are happening all the time in every believer, okay? There's sometimes you're, you're, you're not doing it by the Spirit and you fail, Romans 7. But then other times you do it by the Spirit and sometimes it's within seconds of each other. You do it by the Spirit and it, you do it the right way, okay? So we are to put specific sins to death with the Holy Spirit's help. If you buy the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Okay. So John Owen points out in that work I was talking about mortification of sin. He, he was teaching there that if indwelling sin in our flesh is left unmortified, it causes great destruction. And then his famous line is worth remembering. Be killing sin or, some of you know it, it will be killing you. Wonderful. And, and that is true. We need to be killing sin all the time. Romans 8.13b. So, this biblical uh, practice is called putting off. Scripture calls it. It is called mortification, that putting to death the deeds of the body. But it's also referred to another way. Uh, the first, uh, well... The second one is, is more along the lines of uh, theology. Theologians like that term. Christian counselors tend to like this one uh, somewhat. Uh, dehabituation. Okay, it's another way of talking about it. And I'm bringing these out not just because you now have a bunch of big words that you can impress people with. You know, if you want to, it's fine. But that's not the point. Each of these has it brings out an aspect of this duty that should be helpful to us, okay? So, just as we need to put off, like we're taking off, you know, that, you know, the, the sin of lying, so we need to kill it, but we also need to unlearn bad habits, dehabituation, you know, you know undoing habits, okay? <clears throat> Where does that idea of habit come from? Is that biblical? Yes. Remember our Greek word? Gumnazo, trained in greed, that was a habit they learned. They learned that they learned to be greedy. That was now a habit for them. They saw something that they liked, they wanted it, they were greedy for it. Okay? And and so <clears throat> sinful habits, the, the ones that we as Christians have, those habits remain in our flesh. They used to be in our heart, now they're in our flesh. They must be unlearned and then replaced. Okay, we're not going to go into a lot about unlearning it because the way you unlearn it is you replace it with something else. Think for a minute, uh, Kevin was telling me the other day, uh, one of the things he's heard about this idea of habit is tying your shoes. Okay, So maybe you learned to sh tie your shoes the wrong way. So you just did two knots, regular knots. Okay, that's a nightmare at the end of the day to get undone, right? You know, sometimes when it, it just does it on its own sometimes and it takes forever to get your shoe off. Okay, so... You, that's a nightmare. Well, then, you know, your little kid, mom and dad come along. No, no, you're doing it wrong. You don't, you don't walk them backwards, unlearning it. You just show them the right way. 
you train them the right way. And that's what the Bible says. Okay, so if you've got this habit of lying, then what we need to do is put in place every time you open your mouth, you're telling the truth. Then you won't lie anymore, right? That means your your character uh, has changed in the sense that that sinful deed has been put to death. That habit has been replaced. Okay, so now let's go to the third point. Replace with new habits. So we looked at... <clears throat> there's the first negative duty put off mortification, dehabituation, and now we're going to look at the positive side, replace with new habits. So in place of those old old habits and desires, we need to establish godly habits and desires. And so along with the negative duty to put off sin, there's this positive duty to put on godly behaviors, the corresponding behavior. And sometimes when we fall, uh, fall down in this is we try to replace it with something that doesn't correspond to it. So you say, okay, stop lying, so I want you to learn to start giving. That's not going to help you with your lying. Truth-telling is what replaces lying. You see, they need to correspond to each other, Okay. <clears throat> Again, we learned in Ephesians 4.25, put off lying or falsehood, <clears throat> put in its place, excuse me, <clears throat> put on truth-telling, put it in its place. Another theological term, <clears throat> if you like mortification, this is vivific, I can't even say it now, <laughs> vivification. So, <clears throat> yeah, so the tongue, tongue tires, so... <clears throat> And But you see, one, you're putting to death. The other, you're bringing to life in a sense, okay, which is what that means, okay? <clears throat> what vivification is, is the Holy Spirit extends life to more and more of our flesh. Uh, if you're in Romans 8, look at verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also, what? Give life to what? Your mortal bodies through His Spirit, Holy Spirit, who dwells who dwells who dwells in you. So, what's happening there in vivification is that the Holy Spirit is is using what we're doing, and we're going to talk about that more, to extend life from our new inner man, our new self. To the flesh. And so we're going to come back to this with the illustration, but what's, what you're going to see is that, that island that had the, the big wide beaches. Well, the Holy Spirit is expen- ex- extending that uh, life, if you will, so that there's less and less beach. Okay? And, and so we'll come back to that. <clears throat> but that's what this is doing. Now, theologian Lewis Burkhoff, and he calls it quickening, probably because it's easier to say than vivification, like when I get t- tongue tied. He says it is that act of God whereby the holy disposition of the soul is strengthened. This new self, this new man is strengthened. Holy exercises, in other words, holy living, doing what God calls us to do. Those are increased, so we're obeying more. And thus, a new course of life engendered and promoted. And so what he's saying is that as this life is extended more and more into our flesh, taking over more of it, that we find that we become more consistently godly. We're more consistently obeying God and carrying out His Word. So, you know, there had to be one more name for this, right? Because there's three for each. 
rehabituation. Okay, so we had dehabituation. Now we have rehabituation. In other words, we're putting, we're replacing the bad habit with a, a new habit. Again, this is tied to the, our Greek word gymnazo. We need to work to replace the sinful habits by developing godly habits. Okay, that's the process. Okay, Paul said in First Timothy four seven. Discipline yourself, gumnadzo, train yourself, develop a habit for the purpose of godliness. In other words, you need godly habits. Okay, that's what he's talking about there. So on the chart there, you see how I've listed those, uh, the three options. So you've got the negative and the positive. So put off, put on, mortification, vivification, dehabituation, rehabituation. Okay? And so just different ways of looking at it from different scriptures. But it's the same thing, right? There's that twofold process of, of what we're doing about the sin. But I've expanded this to beyond just put off, put on, because I want us to, there's those parts that sometimes get missed. We need the remember part, okay, uh, as well as this putting off, putting on, uh, steps two and three. And then we need this fourth step. That sometimes we also overlook this. And so I hope, hope this is helpful to you personally, but also those that you disciple and counsel. Okay, that you would think in terms of these four steps, right? So you've got to remember those truths. That's where our hope comes from. And then you've got to put off. You've got to put on. And then number four, reinforce your new self so it is more successful in battle. Reinforce your new self so that it will be more successful in battle. What this does is it advances vivification, okay? So that, that life that's now spreading, advancing, extending into our flesh, this also contributes to that, okay? So how is it that our new self is strengthened, like what uh, Burkhoff was talking about? Well, the Holy Spirit renews and strengthens our inner man when we feed on, guess what? God's Word. We always keep coming back to that. You've, we've got to have God's Word. We've got to do it every day. Um, and this feeding on God's Word, there's there's one as level of it. If you do, like, um, you know, some intensive reading, read through the Bible in a year, or, or one of those plans, those are great, because you need exposure to all of the Scriptures. Okay? But you also need to feed on it. So you can pick one thing out of that, just maybe pick a verse out of that. Or you might have something separate where, you know, I have Bible reading that I, I do, but then I also want one verse that I'm just chewing on, right? And I'm trying to absorb it. I really want it to be mine. I might, you know, study it and, and meditate on it. And that's what I'm talking about here. So what happens is God's Word renews our mind and, and it makes us better study at wielding the sword of the Spirit. Okay, remember the little, little guy, the little green guy, you know, that had the sword of the Spirit. Okay, you get better at wielding it when you study it. I mean, you think about, okay, you know, I, I've got my Bible and I've got it on my phone and it's always in my pocket. I've always got the Word of God with me in my pocket or my purse or whatever. But if you haven't been studying it, you, you, don't, you don't have it in your hand as a sword. Okay, it's tucked away in your purse or your pocket. Okay. And, and you need to have it ready. It means you study it, you know it, so that whenever these attacks come, and they will come, that you're, you're armed and ready. You're skilled. You know how to put that sin to death. Okay? And we're going to talk about some specifics here in a little bit. But then also, as we go through the rest of Ephesians 4, 
we're going to we're going to talk about these things when we talk about uh, stealing and anger and all those those other wonderful things that we wrestle with, right? That's when you can make real progress against those attacks, against those temptations to sin. Uh, turn over to 2 Timothy 3. Second Timothy 3, the verse uh, many of you have memorized. If you haven't, you should. It's, it's so helpful to us. And you may not have seen the whole put-off, put-on in this. And the whole idea of vivification. You may not have seen that in this verse. In 16 and 17 go together, but 2 Timothy 3.16 Paul says there, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed, breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And part of your good works is to put to death these sins, okay? And put on, put good habits in their place, okay? So, think about what he's saying there. So, Scripture teaches us. When you're spending time in the Word of God and you're feeding on it, it is teaching you, okay? It's informing you. It's telling you this is God's way. But he said it also does what? It will reprove you and correct you. Okay, guess what? That's what you need to know for putting off. How do you know what to put off? And you know, what what happens a lot of times in counseling is people will come to us and they'll say, well, I've got, you know, this problem. Well, you, a lot of times you don't find that word in the Bible at all, okay? That doesn't mean the Bible doesn't address it. It's just we need to figure out what's the biblical term. And that's what we do. So we try, what is the biblical term for whatever it is they're experiencing, okay? And they're wrestling with. And then Scripture will reprove us and correct us. It'll show us what it is we need to put off, what it is we need to mortify, what we need to dehabituate, if you will, okay? But, He says also it trains us in righteousness. It shows us what we need to put on. Okay. And guess what? That's what we find all over in Scripture. Think about what we've already studied. 425 Ephesians. Put off falsehood. Put on truth telling. You see, that's that's what Scripture does. It, it, It identifies these are the things you need to get rid of and this is what you need to put in their place. It trains us in righteousness. As we practice righteousness by studying and living out God's Word, and it should be a daily habit. Hebrews five thirteen and 14 says that we are then trained to discern good and evil. You see, we, we start learning more. This is what needs to go away. And this is what needs to come and I need to put on. Okay? Now, guess what Greek word he uses there for train? You, you know it yet? Gumnazo. Thank you. Fun, funny sounding word, isn't it? Right? And, and so hopefully it'll stick with you. Okay? Because that, that, that scripture uses it over and again. Think about here Romans 12 too, the renewing of our minds. You see, our minds are strengthened. Even though in our new mind we have the mind of Christ and all, you know, sin isn't resonant there, but it still needs to be strengthened. Renewed. So that it gets stronger in fighting against these attacks. We must take in God's Word daily if we're to make progress in holiness. 
So let me give you a few directions for putting off and putting on as we kind of pull some of this together. And I've, I've gleaned these from uh, the list that Jay Adams has in the discussion in his Christian Counselor's Manual. And I, I put these into my own words. And you have the slides, so uh, I know you won't be able to get all these down if you want them. First, discover what habit needs to be put off, like lying, for example. What is it needs to be put off? Discover the biblical alternative, what corresponds to it, truth-telling. Then make plans for change. And part of that is to determine what are the steps that typically lead to me sinning. Okay, so you don't just wait till you're in the very moment and now, you know, in, in the throes of all that conflict in your heart, you've already lost at that point. You need to think back, okay, how did I get here? So let's go, what are the steps that, that brought me to this point? And then you deal, you make a plan to deal with those steps. Uh, and if you're curious, this is what we do in biblical counseling. I mean, it, we, it'll, it'll look a little differently in each situation, but this is basically what we do, okay? Get help from other believers, which is why discipleship and counseling are necessary. And, and then this one sometimes gets overlooked. Stress that the whole life needs to follow Jesus. Discipleship. You see, we it isn't just about... When, with counselees or those that you're discipling, sometimes, I just want you to help me with this problem. And the biblical counselor, the pastor, the teacher, the helper should say, the discipler should say, Yes, we'll work on that, but you also need to be working on your walk with Christ. Your whole life, right? <clears throat> and and so, uh, that's one of the steps we need to emphasize. And then, practice the new habit. Okay, so how did you get good at tying your shoe, or riding a bike, or driving a car? How did you get good at that? You practiced it, and you practiced it, and you practiced it, right? Until now... You probably, you know, if I asked you, okay, can you give us the steps real quick how to tie a shoe? Unless you just learned it, you probably can't remember exactly. Well, I don't know. You know, it's like, okay, when I'm going to wear a tie, you know, if I think about it, I can't do it. <clears throat> you know, so I just have to kind of go into rote, you know, and just, okay, I got it, you know. And I guess you can remember the little thing that goes with that, but I can't remember it ever. So, you know, about the rabbit or whatever, so... <clears throat> But you, you practice it until you can do it. And Scripture is what the Holy Spirit uses. That's the sword of the Spirit. That's, that is necessary for this. You know, and if you've ever gone through discipleship or counseling, you're, you're like, oh, enough with the Bible studies, right? No, you've got to have those. You've got to have the Bible studies. Uh, because that, that's... That's key. The Holy Spirit, he, He's not going to just magically put Bible in your head. I wished He would, but He doesn't. Okay? He wants us to get in there and study it. And then as we have it, we're armed with it. And then that's what He uses. And you'll find the Holy Spirit using it. Because then you find yourself, you're tempted. You know, you're tempted in this situation. This situation, you always get angry. And you find yourself tempted, and then verses come to mind. You know, be angry, but do not sin. You know, don't give the devil an opportunity. Okay, and, and you remember those things. You're like, okay, I'm not doing that. And you say, Spirit, help me here, right? So, picture taking control of more and more of the beach, so that sin has less room to launch an attack. 
And so I've got, let's go to the, the illustration, the final illustration there. So I've modified that a little bit. So you see something changed with the island there. The life, the, the black island there, is extending. The Holy Spirit is extending life so that you notice what's happening. The little red guy is kind of getting crowded out. He's having less opportunities and less space to launch attacks. And that's what you want. And that's the picture I want to leave you with. The Holy Spirit is extending that life. That's the Romans 8.11, where He's bringing life to our mortal bodies. Reclaim more and more of your flesh for serving righteousness. And that takes us back to Romans 12, or 6, verses 12 and 13. Don't present, put off, you know, your members to unrighteousness, but present them as instruments of righteousness to God. Put on, right? Okay, that, that was a lot, I know. But, you may say, oh yeah, John, there is a lot there. Can I do this? Is there any hope? I want to leave us with hope. We're back to Romans 8, and you don't have to turn there, but we find verse 37 In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. We overwhelmingly conquer. Okay. And, and, and that was something that I wasn't finding because I didn't, I was taught a wrong method. But we overwhelmingly conquer. And it says, through Him who loved us. And here's where the hope is. He will help you in dealing with fighting sin, living holy. If he loved you enough to do this, verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us what? All things. Even over conquering our sins. If He loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us, He's saying He loves us enough to make sure that He provides what we need to do this. And so I want us to focus our minds now at the Lord's table around this One who loved us, who came to earth and died in our place. The love of Christ that Paul so beautifully expands on here at the end of Romans 8 and elsewhere.